0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, what's in a name? How the label cancer can make people opt for more aggressive treatments? An algorithm that can predict your risk of being sent to hospital? Good news out of Scotland when it comes to the human papillomavirus vaccine? And how many cigarettes are in a bottle of wine? The health risks of smoking are pretty clear, but when it comes to alcohol, the news headlines can be a little bit more confusing. That's especially so if you're drinking in moderation, behaving yourself to one or two standard drinks a night. British researchers have recently tackled this tangled web with a paper that aims to calculate the overall lifetime risk of cancer that's linked to drinking alcohol. We're sports, as always. And the senior author of this research is Nick Sharon, a professor of population hepatology at the University of Southampton. Welcome to The Health Report, Nick.
2: Hi there.
1: You're the first professor of population hepatology we've had on the health report.
2: I don't think there are many, actually.
1: (laughs) Hepatology being the study of liver disease. (laughs) Liver disease, Um, yeah. So, uh, tell us about this study.
2: Well, we've known that alcohol uh, is a carcinogen for, for many years, many epidemiological studies. It causes around about seven different types of cancer and in the uk it's around about one in 20 cancers are alcohol related and whereas everybody knows of the links between smoking and cancer uh, much fewer people are aware of the links with alcohol Um, it's around one in eight in the uk Uh, and this is really problematic because people just simply don't have the information that they need to make informed choices and so we set about trying to improve that situation a few years ago, and also to try and talk about risk. We're not, really talk- we're not very good at talking to people about risk. So we asked ourselves a very simple question, how m- as far as cancer is concerned, in a non-smoker, how many cigarettes uh, are in a bottle of wine? And the results were surprising. Which is not the theory.
1: disgusting thought that you're stubbing your cigarettes out in the wine. It's the, it's the yeah, equivalence.
2: Well, it was, you know, we wanted to try and create a little bit of a mental image that people would remember. <laughs> um and hopefully we've succeeded anyway the results were surprising so for men it's five cigarettes and for women it's 10 cigarettes there's a big gender difference
1: and which cancers uh
2: so this is so the, the cancers that alcohol causes firstly they tend to be the cancers that come into contact with alcohol so mouth throat gullet and then it misses out the bit in the middle and and, and, rectum and rectum and then in addition to that we have the liver possibly the pancreas and perhaps most importantly, certainly for this piece of work, uh, breast cancer is strongly associated with alcohol. So, if on average you drink a bottle of wine for your lifetime, it puts your lifetime risk of, of cancer up by about breast cancer up by about 10%. Now, if breast cancer was really, really rare, that probably wouldn't matter very much. But breast cancer is incredibly common; At around about one in ten women will get breast cancer, and so the absolute risk uh, is around about one percent, something like that.
1: And you also looked as if it, you know, looked at if you actually amped it up, and you were you were drinking more than one bottle of wine. Let's say three bottles of wine, the difference separates even more widely.
2: Yeah. So the so the, the risks, the health risks for alcohol for cancer, they tend to be linear. So they are in a straight line. They start from zero, and then they go up in a straight line. So uh, so one bottle of wine for, for women, ten cigarettes. Two bottles, twenty cigarettes. Three bottles, thirty cigarettes. For some of the other health complications from alcohol, specifically liver disease, the risk is a curved line. It, gets, it, gets, it goes up higher, steeper and steeper, the further you go out. It's an exponential relationship.
1: Even higher if, you've got, if you're overweight or, or obese because of fatty liver.
2: Well, that's absolutely true. And bear in mind that, 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 that there's a couple of caveats with what we're saying. Firstly, we're not in any way saying that, that, that smoke, an average smoker is, has the same risk as someone who drinks. Uh, one or two bottles of wine a week Um, and the reason for that is that 10 cigarettes might seem like a lot to a non-smoker, the average smoker smokes between 80 and 100 cigarettes a week so the health hit is much much higher
1: So what are you supposed to do with this information?
2: Well I think um, you do you, you, You know, first of all to put it in context so the risk is around about the same drinking a bottle of wine a week is about the same risk as driving a car for 50 years And it's the same level of risk that the UK CMO issued a guideline uh, last year where they suggested the safe guideline for alcohol intake was 14 units or 14 centiliters a week for both men and women, and that's about a bottle and a half of wine. There's 10 uh, centiliters of alcohol in a a bottle. Now, that level was set where the risk of death from alcohol is 1 in 100, in other words, 1%. And that's that's a risk that a lot of people will be prepared to negotiate on the basis that they they really enjoy drinking alcohol. And the majority of people, certainly in European culture uh, and and developed countries, like drinking alcohol. So it's giving people a frame of reference. If you're drinking a bottle of wine a week, then the risk is about the same as driving. Um, When you start to increase your alcohol above that, you know, two, three, four, five and more bottles of wine, all the equivalent in alcohol, your health risk goes up and it enables people to think about their health risks and then reduce the risk should they choose to do so.
1: Of course the risks of alcohol are as you've illustrated more complex than smoking. You know, smoking is largely a variety of cancers and, um, and, and heart disease and stroke whereas you know alcohol is violence crashing your car etc cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Yeah, the health arts and alcohol. they fall into sort of four categories. There are things that you do that are a bit stupid when you're drunk, like crashing your car or hitting someone. Uh, There's the cancer risk, which is around about a quarter of deaths. There's liver disease, which is around about a quarter of deaths. But, for example, in the UK, liver disease is probably going to outstrip ischemic heart disease as a leading cause of premature mortality. Really? And that is because people die from liver disease, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the average age of death is 50, and the average age of death from heart disease and also smoking-related diseases is much, much later. And then the final quarter uh, is hypertension and ischemic heart disease, and it used to be thought that a very, a very low dose of alcohol could be in some way protected, but a very important paper uh, in The Lancet this week, which you may have seen, uh, completely trashed out of that, that as, as a myth, It's due to confounding, and there's no uh, help benefit from drinking levels
1: of alcohol. So keep it safe. Nick Sharon, thanks for joining us.
2: You're very welcome.
1: Professor Nick Sharon is a liver doctor at the University of Southampton, population hepatology. Across Australia, you're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. What a difference, and this is related to this next story because it's all about risk and risk perception, what a difference a word makes when it comes to important decisions you might make about cancer treatment. A Canadian study has found that when the word cancer is used, even when the tumour is relatively harmless the person's attitude becomes more fearful and colours their decision-making. The study asked people about hypothetical scenarios around early thyroid cancer. There's been an epidemic of this diagnosis linked to an epidemic of CAT scans, CT scans of the chest, which have picked up thyroid nodules as an incidental finding because the neck has been caught up in the scan. Trouble is that while under the microscope these nodules have cancerous features, the vast majority won't progress. This study looked at whether our feelings about exactly the same tumour change according to the name. The paper's lead author was David Erbach, Surgeon-in-Chief at the Women's College Hospital in Toronto, and I spoke to him earlier today.
3: We sample people who don't have any history of cancer or any problem with thyroid cancer to ask them about different scenarios related to having a thyroid cancer. We presented people with pairs of scenarios and asked them to state which one they preferred.
1: What does preferred actually mean?
3: Preferred meant which scenario they would rather have. We were presenting them a scenario with a list of different attributes, one of which may have been treatment, but it just asked them to distinguish which one, from their perspective, was better. So was it better to have something called a thyroid nodule that had a risk of progression of 1% and was treated with just watchful waiting, Or was it better to have something called a thyroid cancer that had a risk of progression of 5% and would be treated with surgery? The specific things we looked at were what this disease was called. So if it was called a thyroid nodule, a thyroid tumor, a thyroid cancer, we looked at whether the condition had a risk of progression or advancement of 1%, 2%, or 5%.
1: Regardless of what it was called?
3: Regardless of what it was called. And these are all presented in different combinations.
1: And what did you find?
3: So what we found were that they preferred to have something called a thyroid nodule more than they preferred to have something called a thyroid tumor. And what they least preferred was to have something called a thyroid cancer. For example, having something that was called a thyroid cancer was as bad as having a condition that had a 5% risk of progression as opposed to a 1% risk of progression.
1: Now, this is not shocking. I mean, most people would rather have the label nodule than cancer. But what can you infer in terms of day-to-day life in clinical practice or for patients who might have had a nodule turn up on an X-ray by accident?
3: One thing that the study clearly shows us is that the word itself is important and it has outsized importance. The implication uh, to you know, doctors, for example, is that it's not just enough to think you're having a conversation with a patient where you provide different types of alternatives to deal with, you know, what you believe is a low-risk cancer that may not require surgical treatment or may not require aggressive treatment. As a doctor, you may think you've presented all the pros and cons and risks and benefits, presented this bouquet of information to the patient, at which point they're going to make a rational decision that's best for them. What this tells us is that's not necessarily going to happen because The word cancer is so influential and has such profound social meaning that the patient may no longer take all these other factors into a very rational consideration and, in fact, make a decision that might be best for them, but that they might be so driven by the term that has this very uh, profound meaning and may choose treatments that are more aggressive, such as surgical treatment, that may not be warranted and may not even be what they want deep down.
1: And this is most acutely and more commonly found in prostate cancer?
3: You know, really, the elephant in the room is prostate cancer, which is much more common cancer and one which we've known for many years now. There is a very large subset of men who have early prostate cancers that are completely innocuous. They will never really progress, never cause death or disability in the lifetime of a man. Yet, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, at least in North America, and I suspect this is true as well in Australia men opt to have surgical treatment for these low-risk prostate cancers, it's been a challenge to try and understand exactly why that is. Why are people electing to have surgical procedures that give them a fairly substantial risk of very troubling side effects even when they're told explicitly the treatment has no benefit? We know from experience this happens all the time. What we believe is that men with prostate cancer and alternately as well, People with uh, this thyroid cancer scenario are just being driven by the fact that the word cancer is being used and cancer to them has this meaning. And the meaning is this is the disease that could kill them. It cannot remain in their body and it needs to be surgically removed or treated very aggressively.
1: Now, some people argue that we should change you know, carcinoma in situ in breast cancer, early thyroid cancer, and early prostate cancer, and we should call them all nodules. Would that be conning patients?
3: What we call these things is very important. It's obviously uh, as well important to be honest with patients. And I think if something is a carcinoma, because the pathologist interprets that to be a carcinoma, then that has to be disclosed to patients. So I think we cannot use terms that are not scientifically correct or that are misleadingly wrong. What our challenge is is to understand that this word is so loaded and so powerful that we have to redouble our efforts to make sure that patients really understand what we're talking about and to focus more on a discussion of natural history of the disease and the, um, the consequences of treatment and really try as hard as possible to push away from the fear that we know is going to be associated with a diagnosis of cancer. Also important to realize is the doctors that are often having these discussions with patients are surgeons. We do not have great training and having what is really a very complex and nuanced and critical conversation about the nature of these patient fears that arise with a label like cancer. It takes special skills to really help people understand what the considerations are for treatments of some of these early cancers for which aggressive treatment is often not warranted.
1: David Erber, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report.
3: Thank you, my pleasure.
1: David Erbach is Professor of Surgery at the University of Toronto. And now to that promised good news story out of Scotland, where they've looked at eight years' worth of data on the human papillomavirus vaccine, which protects against cervical cancer. They showed that a bivalent vaccine, sorry for the technical jargon, which only protects against two types of HPV, is very effective in reducing rates of all cervical cancer. In Australia, we've already got what's called a quadrivalent vaccine, which protects against four types of HPV. So what does this mean for the effort to eliminate cervical cancer, not just in Australia and Scotland, but around the world? Associate Professor Julia Brotherton wrote a commentary on the research. She's the Medical Director of the VCS, or VCS Population Health at the VCS Foundation in Victoria. Welcome to the Health Report, Julia. Thank you. So just describe the results of the Scottish study, because is eight years really enough to tell you that you're eliminating cervical cancer?
0: Yeah, well, I guess the answer is probably not. Uh, The... The interesting thing about this study is what they've done is had a look at women's uh, results from their very first screening test. So this is following eight cohorts of women, uh, all of whom had their first cervical screening test at age 20, which was the age in Scotland. And so by doing this, they were able to compare the rates of um, significant cervical disease. So that's the precancerous lesions that screening aims to detect uh, in those cohorts who had never had the vaccine the uh, women who had received the vaccine at an older than recommended age. And then in the two most recent years, of course, the girls who were vaccinated at school at the age of 12 to 13. And this is a really powerful way um, of having a look at changes in incidence in these screening women, Uh, before and after vaccination in both vaccinated and unvaccinated women. And what they found was an absolutely staggering reduction. And you said in the introduction that they used a bivalent vaccine, which means only protecting against two types. And that's why it's incredible that they found a 90% reduction in these most significant precancerous lesions in these young women.
1: So they were interrupted on the pathway to cancer. So in other words, they, they weren't getting... HPV um, um, in, in infection in the cervix and then they weren't getting this carcinoma in situ. the the, the you know, recurrent theme in this program, which is this early form of cancer, but this is in the cervix. So they weren't on the path.
0: Exactly. And therefore
1: the assumption is that they were, you were in, interrupting the path to cancer.
0: Exactly. So previous research from this group has shown an absolute wipeout of these most cancer-causing viruses in the population due to the vaccine program. And this just confirms that wiping out the causal infection is wiping out the second stage of the pathway, and I think we're going to see very soon uh, impacts on cancers. So,
1: when we r- originally covered the story of HPV vaccine, it was that the vaccine was going to be very specific to. Mm-hmm. I think in Australia, it was originally sixteen, type sixteen and type eighteen, but there are all these other types. were told, and Correct. it wasn't <laughs> going to work. And the Scottish study suggests that even just two types. There's cross-immunisation. It affects the other types as well.
0: Correct. Um, and this is a really interesting phenomena that, uh, as you said, we thought at, ty- at first that they are going to be very type-specific. There are about 40 different types of HPV that infect the genital tract. Um, and of these, about 13 are associated with cancer. The vaccines all cover the very nastiest type, which is type 16. But this bivalent vaccine they use produces very good levels of antibodies. And we can now see that it provides significant protection against against types that are not targeted but are closely related. And these are the next most oncogenic types, so the next most cancer-causing types. And so it's really amazing that so much extra disease than was predicted was wiped out, basically, in these young women in Scotland. Now, you
1: and your papers speculate that the quadrivalent vaccine might result in lower effectiveness.
0: So the interesting thing is that, of course, uh Time moves on, and in fact, in Australia, we're now using a nine-valent vaccine, which protects against nine different types. And what they've done is added the five next most common cancer-causing types. But what this Scottish data is showing that is that original bivalent vaccine had such good cross-protection in that country, it's giving almost as good protection as we will see when our nine-valent vaccine cohorts move through. And this is a really significant interest you're issue. you're
1: sidestepping my question uh, because you actually said you thought there might be lower lower effectiveness from a quadrivalent yep. than the
0: bivalent. Why is that? Yeah. So the issue is that the quadrivalent and the bivalent vaccine, Both protect against 16 and 18. The other two types in the quadrivalent vaccine, so four types, are targeted against genital warts. So they're equivalent in that sense. However, the quadrivalent vaccine has got a different, what we call, adjuvant system, so a different stimulator of the immune system that we put in vaccines. We know in head-to-head studies the bivalent vaccine produces much stronger immune responses, much higher antibody teeters. And that's why we think this is specific to the bivalent vaccine, that very high cross protection. So the big issue is, The poorest countries of the world, the countries with the highest cervical cancer burden, still don't have these vaccines routinely. They have a choice between bivalent and quadrivalent, and this study challenges the idea that quadrivalent is necessarily better. If your program is about cancer prevention, this study shows the bivalent vaccine is an excellent choice for cancer prevention.
1: Now, there's three doses at the moment of these vaccines. Do we need three? No, is
0: we this don't. Is another surprise? We don't. So uh, originally they certainly were trialled as three doses. We now actually only give two doses to people as long as they're 14 or under. And that's because we know if we space the doses more widely apart, we get the same level of antibody protection as we do with three doses. The next challenge is, is one dose enough? And there's a lot of emerging data that's that could possibly suggest that it is in fact, there's randomised trials happening at the moment to see if one dose of vaccine could be enough. And of course, that would be a game changer for the poorest people in the world where the biggest cervical cancer burden is. If one dose was enough, we could see mass vaccine campaigns both genders and really wipe out this virus. So, watch so this okay. space. Here's
1: the career-ending question for you, <laughs> Professor Brotherton. Um, what does it do for screening? We're just moving to five-year screening yeah. for women. Um, we've got a real problem because Telstra Health failed to actually deliver on the on the cancer registry mm-hmm. completely, and uh, there's a whole problem with colposcopy and follow-up. But does it mean that you actually still need five yearly screening?
0: I suspect not. I think you're exactly right. I think as soon as we demonstrate uh, just how effective these vaccines are, if we can show that they're going to wipe out the bulk of disease, yes. We need to question if we need to keep screening. However, we're not there yet. We have cohorts of women who are already infected with HPV that our HPV-based screening program is looking for right now and many women across the world who still have no hope of either vaccination or screening. So definitely in the future, I think, um, I'd love to say we don't need to screen anymore.
1: Yeah, but don't take a message just yet. No,
0: no, no, no. Keep yeah, on screening keep people. Keep on screening, but go to five <laughs> yearly
1: and uh, watch for those recalls. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Associate Professor Julia Brotherton, who was until I interviewed her a medical director of the VCS Population <laughs> Health at the VCS Foundation. A trip to the hospital is, of course, meant to get you well again. But best of all is when you're healthy enough to avoid it in the first place. A very significant proportion of hospitalisations in Australia are avoidable if people receive appropriate care in the community. The costs both personally and in taxpayers' dollars are enormous, not to mention that hospitals are dangerous places if you don't need to be there. So, predicting someone's risk of going to hospital is important, but has been elusive. The Department of Health has been trialling a hospitalisation risk algorithm in a small number of general practices, and now the calculator is set to be rolled out more wide, widely. One of the people involved in this research is Professor Michael Georgiev, founder of Precedence Healthcare, an Australian digital health technology company. Welcome to the Health Report, Michael. Hi. Oh, right. What is this algorithm? Just tell us how it works.
4: The algorithm is a smart program that connects to the typical systems that run in a GP practice, that when you go to a GP, the GP types in your health information. This program connects to that record of your health, and then based on the data- that it
1: plucks, it sucks out data. Sucks
4: out the data from that, your health record- Based on the data that it
1: gets. So this is the medical software that your doctor is recording the information into. Yeah. So
4: as you, when you go to the, your practice, the doctor records your information, whether you've got The same diabetes, software that triggers your
1: cervical cancer screen or something like yeah, that. Yeah, what your yep.
4: pathology, you know, it takes your blood pressure, etc. So it uses that data to then predict based on what medications you've got, based on what illnesses you have, to predict your likelihood of going to hospital in the next 12 months.
1: Now, your interest for many years has been people with what's called chronic disease. In other words, you get a diagnosis and you're never going to get better from it. You've got diabetes, you've got heart disease, you've got dementia and so on. And you've been committed to actually helping this. So this is really people with chronic disease and it's trying to prevent the stepwise downward progression to hospitalisation and eventually to premature death. Um, and and if you intervene, if you recognise that you're on the downward slope, intervening to try and keep you on the higher slope.
4: Yes, exactly.
1: The issue here is
4: that, and what's, the, what's important about this particular algorithm, is that it works with the data that your GP has. So this means <clears throat> that your local doctor uh, can, for the first time, be able to tell you, uh, or in fact inform himself or herself, uh, that you've got potentially a high risk of hospitalization. And knowing that, I as the doctor, can intervene to So briefly g- give that. us
1: the elements that are in the algorithm what are, what are they taking out i mean if you for example if you want to predict your 10 year chances of getting heart disease it's your uh, dangerous cholesterol level your blood pressure whether you smoke your age and so on what what what, yes, what, and it, what are the predictors for hospitalization
4: and fundamentally they're all the same i mean they're what medications you're on they're the types of medications they're what sorts of chronic disease you have, whether you have diabetes, whether you have asthma, whether you had cardiovascular disease, whether you smoke or not,
1: whether you drink alcohol. You're a- So it's all those So it's parameters. multiple things brought together. Yeah. And how accurate is it in predicting whether or not you're going to go to the hospital?
4: Uh, it's, uh, and over what time period? Yeah. So all we can say is it's as accurate as
1: any other algorithm that... Uh, well, that's, uh, that's not really telling me much. Of 100 people <laughs> yeah. scoring high on your algorithm how many are going to be yeah, in hospital on the in 10 minutes? Yeah, uh, on the oh 95% nine?
4: confidence level,
1: uh, it's accurate to
4: 95%. So it may get 5% that are wrong. So when it says you've got a high
1: chance of going to hospital, 5% of those may be wrong. Does it give the, the GP an action plan saying, if you correct this, this is going to prevent, or does it say, this is something you need to look at more closely because their chance of going to hospital yeah. in the next three months are, is high? It's a red flag. So the important thing is GPs,
4: particularly with, the, um, with chronic disease overwhelming the, um, their, and you know, forcing them to uh, manage uh, a large number of patients in a longitudinal way is really overwhelming. So unless, so, there's very hard for a GP to keep track
1: of. So w- one of the things that could happen here yeah. is that the GP over relies on the algorithm and if there's no red flag, they think, oh, I can relax about Mrs. Jones in front of me, even though she looks dreadful, um, because the algorithm's not showing that she's at, she's heading for hospital. Is It's going to miss, no algorithm is perfect, it's going to miss some people who, who tomorrow will end up in an ambulance.
4: Yes, absolutely. So I think it's a, um, I doubt the GPs, any intelligent GP would do that, because they know what, the, so it's more of a red flag that is going to, Uh, Alert the GP to a potential issue that they may may have missed because they're so busy looking at
1: attending something. Now you studied this in something called the Healthcare Home which has been an experiment by the Commonwealth Government and 200 general practices Mm -hmm. to see if you could actually wrap such people with chronic illness around with care comprehensive care. Did it make any difference? Did you Did they manage to avoid hospitalizations? I think it's been tested in about two million people so far? Did they manage to avoid hospitalization in, in people?
4: So those trials are uh, very early stage, so the, um, the answer is we don't know yet. I mean w- what we do know is that um, as you as you began uh, the conversation, uh, currently we have over 700,000 people go to hospital uh, unnecessarily. Uh, we've got-
1: And someone's th- got to be done about it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, we've got 3 million bed days that are preventable. 10% of hospitalizations preventable.
1: And just in case they think this is a commercial conversation, this algorithm is going to be made publicly available for other people to use.
4: Yes. Yeah, so, the, so one, of the, one of the things that the Commonwealth has done is to make this algorithm available to anyone to use.
1: Michael, thanks very much indeed. Michael George F is founder of President's Healthcare and adjunct professor at Monash University in Melbourne. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. Do join me next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.